Hey, baby family and friends, welcome back to the Weekend Wednesday podcast, the podcast that brings a weekend worship into your midweek. My name is Min Su Kang, and I'm your host for this week's episode. Before we jump in, I want to say a big thank you to everyone who has shown so much support and excitement for these podcast episodes. Your encouragement means a lot to me, and I can definitely see God moving through this medium. Part of my joy in hosting is being able to hear how God has been faithful to you. So please write in and let me know how you've seen the fingerprints of God in your story, no matter how small they may be. You can submit your stories to info at bayviewglen.org. And who knows, maybe your story can impact someone else to believe that God has not abandoned them. Maybe he's been working all along, but just behind the scenes. Let's continue on to Esther chapter 3 and see the fingerprints of God. In this chapter, we're introduced to the villain of our story, Haman. And for whatever reason, Haman is promoted to a position that is higher than all the other nobles. One of those nobles being Mordecai. Side note. Mordecai is now working for King Xerxes. This explains why he was sitting in the king's court at the end of chapter 2, where he was able to hear the plot to kill King Xerxes. Fingerprint of God much? Esther was probably a great job reference for him. With Haman now in a high position, Xerxes commands that every knee bows and pays him honor. This Mordecai refuses to do. As we've seen with Vashti, the king and his commands are not to be messed with. And so, Mordecai's colleagues question him. Why do you transgress the king's commands? Why aren't you doing what we're doing? Why aren't you going with the flow? We're told that these questions went on day after day. And it's here, sometime in between all the constant questioning, that Mordecai reveals he's a Jew, one who worships Yahweh and no one else. This was a risky move on Mordecai's part because, remember, the surrounding culture is not friendly to the Jewish people. Knowing this information, the other nobles tattletale on Mordecai to Haman. They want to see if Mordecai's behavior will be tolerated. And it's not. Haman is enraged. He not only wants to inflict punishment on Mordecai, he wants to take it to the next level. He wants to eliminate all the Jewish people we see that a deep prejudice existed inside Haman's heart, and he believes this was his moment to bring about his desired end. Through a strange pagan ritual involving dice, Haman determined that the best time to annihilate the Jews was on the 13th day of the 12th month in the Hebrew calendar. He presents his plans to King Xerxes, being very strategic with his wording. Instead of mentioning Mordecai, Haman speaks about the Jewish people as a whole, saying that they keep themselves separate from the surrounding culture and that they don't obey the king's laws. And we know how Xerxes feels about his laws. Haman advises Xerxes to eliminate this group of people from his empire because it is not in his best interest to keep them. Xerxes approves of Haman's campaign, and on the 13th day of the first month, an edict is written and dispatched to all the different provinces of the empire. It read, Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, 
and plunder their goods. The Jewish people have 11 months left until their destruction. Where is God? What is he up to? Is he even present? In this third chapter of Esther, I saw God's fingerprints in the ways that Mordecai did not compromise his allegiance to Yahweh when faced with a compromising situation. He refused to be incorporated into the surrounding culture to go with the flow. This was a courageous thing to do because living in the Persian Empire, Mordecai was fully aware of what happened to Vashti. He knew there could be grave consequences for his actions. Yet, even though his surrounding culture paid no attention to the Lord, even though his cousin Esther was now queen of this empire, even though his colleagues constantly berated him with questions and opportunities to compromise, and even though his people were exiled from the promised land, Mordecai chose the path of obedience. He chose to believe that obedience was worth more than compromise. And where does this obedience leave him? Not only is he punished, but his obedience has a negative impact on all the Jewish people. What? This wasn't supposed to happen. Shouldn't obedience lead to a change in circumstances? Shouldn't obedience remove the negative and usher in the positives? What was the point of being obedient then? I can't say I know how God works, but my experience has shown me that sometimes obedience isn't always accompanied by feel-good emotions, nor does it always change a circumstance. Sometimes, being left in the same circumstances with negative emotions is an indication that we are being obedient to the Lord. Yet if there's one thing I know for certain, God is present. Even in the pain and confusion, God promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And isn't that ultimately what we crave? That even if we are going through the worst, God is near? that he knows, sees, and loves you? Your life situation may not be as intense as what Mordecai experienced, or maybe it is. Maybe for you, your past or present life experiences feel very confusing, heavy, and overwhelming. And in that state, do you find yourself wanting to be obedient as Mordecai was? I definitely have experienced this tension before. When I was removed from all my distractions and comforts in Toronto, I came face to face with myself in Vancouver. I didn't have anything to hide behind or something to distract myself from the pain that came with facing my brokenness. One of the things that the Lord led me through was looking back to some of my formative years and how those particular moments shaped the person that I am today. Through a trusted Christian community and a Christian counselor, I dove deep into my relationships with family, friends, sin that was done to me, and sin that I inflicted. And let me tell you, this was a very painful process, but a good process nonetheless. I was able to see the reasons why I was still struggling with certain sins, why I hated being alone, and how I was treating God like a vending machine rather than my Lord. This caused me to experience a lot of sadness and pain, 
and I entered a season of discouragement thinking, did I do this Christian life the wrong way? What was the last 30 plus years of my life? Instead of inviting God into this space and putting my roots deeper in Him, I chose to distance myself from God and give into the discouragement and sadness. And even though it was a hard space to be in, it was comfortable. I used my emotional state as an excuse to do nothing. And I don't know about you, but when you're not emotionally there, it's way easier to be disobedient. My way of coping was often buying a bottle of wine, a large Domino's Hawaiian pizza, a bottle of ranch, and watching hours and hours of YouTube. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that we need seasons to grieve and lament. I'm not saying to negate that process. What I am saying is that we can sometimes fall into a trap when we're in this checked out state. We can either push God away or unnecessarily prolong the season, or both. In my state of discouragement, obedience felt like this giant step forward that I knew I wasn't ready to take. In his pursuit of me, God wasn't asking me to take a leap. He asked me to take one small obedience step forward. What this practically looked like was talking with God about my pain while drinking wine, eating pizza, and watching YouTube. He wanted to be close. And here's the thing. My pain didn't go away right at that moment. Nothing significantly changed. Being in that unpleasant state was actually God's plan for me. It wasn't an indication that I was doing something wrong. It was actually an indication that I was doing something right. Through constant conversations with God, I experienced what true intimacy looked like. God loved me, orts and all. Slowly, Jesus called me to other steps of obedience until... I saw my pain differently. It wasn't God putting a mirror in front of me, shaking his head and telling me how horrible I was. It was God wanting to make me more of an authentic disciple. He wanted to bring me closer. He wanted to refine me. As I said, even though it was a tough season, I was given such a gift. I know now what intimacy with the Lord looks, and feels like. What about you? When you think about obedience in a past or present season, what emotions come up for you? Does obedience seem desirable? Daunting? Maybe you're not even there yet. Maybe you're just checked out. My encouragement for you is to ask the Lord, what is a small way that you can walk in obedience to Him this week? Emphasis on the word small. How can you start exercising the muscle of obedience? Some ideas can include, say a short but genuine prayer each day this week, pouring out your heart to God. Connect with a friend when you feel the temptation to give into your coping vice. Or send a prayer request to bayviewglen.org prayer. Even though small, this decision might be a difficult one, and it may leave you in a state of pain or confusion. 
But I believe, and this belief comes from experience, that if we keep giving God space to move, He will come through. Your pain and confusion isn't for nothing. It is for a purpose that only God can reveal to you. Allow Him to show you that. All right, baby community, that's it for me. Thank you for taking the time in your week to tune in. I pray that you are impacted as we engage in worship throughout the week, and I look forward to diving even deeper into what God is doing with you all. See you next week on Weekend Wednesday. Thank you.